If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to the very last book, the book of Revelation, and find the passage that Sarah read to us just a moment ago, Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 22. So we've come to the end. Uh, Back in January, January the 20th, we began a series of sermons through the book of Revelation, and this morning we come to the last passage. Now let's remember the context. This part of the Bible, Revelation, was written in the early 60s of the very first century. Now just to give you a sense of kind of where that falls, that's about 30 years after Jesus was crucified, died, buried, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. It's written by a guy named John, who, because he was a Christian, he had been deported. A thing we can imagine. All the trauma that comes with that. He lost his possessions, his home, everything he knew, and he was dropped off on an island by the name of Patmos. It's about 35 miles off the coast of what we call today Turkey, the southwestern part of Turkey. And while he's in exile on this island, Jesus unveils himself to John. And he dictates a message to churches in Asia Minor through John. That John writes down and it's this this letter, Revelation. It's the message that Jesus dictated to John. And John sends this letter and what Jesus tells these churches is crisis is coming. The power of Satan is nestling down into both the Jewish synagogues and the Roman government. And they're going to turn on Christians in a pincher move. And they're going to attempt to wipe out the church. They're going, the church is going to experience, it's right on the cusp, in just a few years, over and over it says, soon, 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 the church is going to experience a very intense persecution, a holocaust. And so Jesus loves the churches. And so what would you do if someone you love deeply, you knew they were about to suffer a holocaust? So he does what you would do. He loves them. He warns them. He says to them, this is coming. He he sends them this message because they need to be ready. And they weren't. They were not ready. When you read through those first seven letters in chapters 2 and chapter 3, that's Jesus saying, you're not ready. You've got to get ready. So Revelation is a letter. It's the king's love letter to these particular churches To comfort them. To tell them what's about to happen. To stir them up to zeal and faithfulness. To help them renew their love for Jesus Christ. And our reading this morning is the last couple of paragraphs of the letter. It's it's like the end of a long and complex symphony. A wild and ancient sound. And it's drawing together all the various movements and melodies we've heard throughout the course of the last year. As we've just kind of skimmed the surface of this text. And in this final section, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fairest of 10,000. 
who is our greatest lover, the lover who seeks a passionate bride, he returns once again to a few notes that kept intruding all through the symphony. Here in this last letter, we need to pay it, this last part of the letter, we need to pay attention to four final reminders, four practical instructions from Jesus to his beloved churches as they're about to go through persecution. Here are four habits they need if they are going to endure faithfully through the years of pain and suffering they're about to walk in. Number one, he tells them, you've got to make a habit out of trusting the Bible. Trust the Bible. Notice verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Here he is in the early 60s. And when you read through the letter, he said, you're going to go through all these things. And we know that happened. We've got the privilege of hindsight. We can see a letter written in the early 60s prophesying something that's going to happen, and we know it happened. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that on July the 18th, in the year 64 AD, what happened in Rome? Anybody know? A fire started. We know this. We know that a fire started in Rome on July the 18th of 64 And it burned for six days before it was brought under control. And the emperor at the time was Nero. And he blamed the Christians. And he used that like Kristallnacht. Like Hitler and Germany used Kristallnacht to blame the Jews and to start a holocaust. That was a a line out of an old playbook. And he used that to begin a holocaust. The Holocaust of Christians. And between the years 64 and 68, Christians throughout the Roman Empire terribly suffered. Now we have the luxury of looking back and seeing conclusive proof that yes, the words of this book are absolutely trustworthy and true. Now that's a fabulous description of Revelation. It's trustworthy and true. But not just Revelation. That is a great description of the whole Bible. The Old and the New Testament. This book is totally trustworthy and true. Because at the end of the day, God wrote it. And yes, he used fallible, fallen, imperfect people like John who wrote Revelation. But these people who wrote all the different parts of the Bible over and above all their weaknesses and all their limitations as human beings is God. The real author. The author of Behind the authors. And when it comes to thinking about this world. To figuring out what's good and true and beautiful and right and important in this world. And when it comes to figuring out what we should love and what we should not love. And what we should desire and how much we should desire it. And how we should pray and what we should pray. And when it comes to figuring out how to prepare for our own deaths. Like the Christians who were the first recipients of Revelation. When it comes to all of these things and a thousand besides, nothing outdoes Scripture. Nothing outdoes it. Culture shifts. Laws are created. Public opinion sways with the winds of time. But amidst all these changes, Scripture stays here and it stays true all the time, all day long, every day. 
Remember our gospel reading, Luke chapter 24. Even the risen Jesus took time to have a Bible study with his disciples. To reveal to them the importance of who he was and what he had done. Think about this. They were confused. And Jesus sorts them out, cleans up their confusion, gives them an orientation. How? By having a Bible study. It's not a cliche. It's not a joke. It's for real what Jesus did. He takes the time to have a Bible study in order to help his disciples make sense of all the crazy things going on in their world. This is a key to a life of faithfulness. Never stop reading the Bible. Depend on the Bible. Trust that it is true and it is right more than you are. That what it says about God is more true than what you think about God. That what it says about the environment is more true than what you want to be true about the environment. That what it says about how to treat the poor is more true than what you think about treating the poor. That what it says about who to have sex with is more true. That everything the Bible speaks about is more true than any thought you or I have ever had. Church of the Incarnation. Read the Bible. Every day. If you're a man, read the Bible. If you're a woman, read the Bible. If you're a child, a college student, read the Bible. And I know it's not always something we want to do. But I've found that I'm hungriest to read Scripture when I'm reading Scripture. And I know part of that is simply the psychology behind a habit. But part of it is that the Word of God really is alive. And it really is active. And God's Spirit fills it with light. And through God's Spirit, God speaks direction. And He personally speaks to you when you read the Bible. Whenever you read the Bible, God is at hand. Every time. And the Bible is better and truer and livelier than anything you listen to or watch or read or think about. It is more important than books about it. The Bible is the word of God. And that's one habit we as a church and you as an individual must develop if you are going to be faithful to God in the storms that are coming your way. A second habit comes up in verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I... Heard and saw them. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. There it is. Worship God. That's the second habit you need and I need. You have to make a habit out of worshiping God. Now, God said to these early Christians who were about to go through a holocaust, he is saying to them, guys, Read and trust scripture and worship God. This is critical for you to endure what you're about to go through. And God is saying that to you today. Worship God is God talking to you. It's God talking to me. This is how you can prepare for the storms you're going to go through. Whether they are the intense suffering of persecution or the suffering of a miscarriage. 
or the loss of a job, or loneliness, or depression, or divorce, or the stress of not knowing what you're going to do, to your li- do with your life, trust the Bible and worship God. In fact, worship God is the first and greatest commandment in Revelation. Worshiping Him is fundamentally important to, sur- to surviving the difficulties facing them and for you to survive the difficulties ahead of you. If you're a child, if you're a teenager, if you're a college student and you've done everything that life has to offer and you're in the senior years of your life, you need to worship God. It is one of the most important tools God has given you to make it. Now in scripture, God shows us there are three ways we worship him. And you need to do all three of these. Write these down. Think about these. Which of these do you need to recommit yourself to? First of all, there's a way of living your whole life such that your entire life is a sacrifice of worship to God. This is what Romans 12, 1 to 2 says. Your whole life is clean before him. Your whole life is, is, is before his face as an act of worship. Number two, we must set aside time on a daily basis to personally worship and adore King Jesus. When was the last time you worshiped Jesus when nobody else was in the room? When you were by yourself? Is that still a habit? Is it a habit of yours that every day you stop and you give space to worshiping Jesus Christ? And third and most important, we gather with the church on Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day, and we do what we're doing here, going to church. Worshiping at church with the church. Worship God. This is the first and greatest commandment of the book of Revelation. And when it comes to the trials of life, big and small, we must fight with spiritual weapons in heavenly places. Worship is our weapon. Not anxiety. Not worry, not plotting, not planning. Worship. And we must make all three of these kinds of worship a habit in our life. Number three, trust the Bible, worship God. And number three, he tells them as they're looking forward to this blistering suffering, they have to make a habit. Out of repentance. Listen to verse 10. And he said to me, do, do, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, part of what we see in this section is that there is a time for repentance, but it will not last forever. The bell will ring and the chance will be gone. The judgment of God works by turning the wicked over to their wickedness. By allowing the wicked to become more wicked. 
so that they receive the just judgment of God. There comes a point where the wicked and the righteous are sealed in their states, in their wickedness, in their righteousness. God is dangerous. Yes, he's good. Yes, he is the fairest of 10,000. And yes, he is a lover longing for his beloved. And he is our shepherd. But like we heard from Micah chapter 1, when he steps off his throne and places his feet on mountains, they melt under the heat of his anger. God is not safe. He is not your grandfather. We must learn to repent because of that. That's why you repent. Because God is dangerous. Remember the Bible. The whole Bible is God's word. All of it is trustworthy and true. And what it says about God on any page is more true than anything you've ever thought about God. And one of the things scripture does is it leans against our tendency to construct a God after the image of this moment in our culture and place. We cannot approach the delicatessen of God's person like we approach a buffet taking a heaping of this and a dollop of that while passing over what seems to us unpalatable. We must let the entire Bible determine our understanding of God and challenge the God in our imagination. We do no favors to ourselves or to others when we lessen the severity of God even in an attempt to make him acceptable to non-Christians. While many of our worship songs speak of touching and seeing God, you will have a hard time finding any character in the Bible who wants to touch and see God. Israel, Isaiah knew once he saw God that his life was over. Jacob never walked again the same way after seeing God. Job asked for a day in court with God and regretted it thereafter. God is an overwhelming mystery. And his severity cannot be separated from his mighty love. And if your definition of love doesn't make room for his severity, you are wrong. And the Bible is right. Because God wrote the Bible. It all depends on that. Everything that Christianity is stands or falls on God writing the Bible. The wicked will receive what they deserve. The righteous will receive the reward for what they have done. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Everything you've ever done. Whether it's in secret or not. Romans chapter 14 verse 10 and 12. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Old Testament, New Testament. You can't get away from this. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12 verse 36. I tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. I could go on and on. This is the consistent and fundamental teaching of the Bible. And this is why we must repent. Because this is what God's going to do. 
We should be afraid of this. Repent out of fear. With his fiery eyes, the Lord Jesus sees the beginning and the end of every human action. He discerns our thoughts and intentions. And in the day of judgment, the flames of his eyes will burn through every excuse we offer. He'll evaluate both seed and fruit and everything in between. So the Christian life must be marked by repentance. Blessed are those, it says in verse 14, who wash their robes. You want to be blessed? There's something you got to do. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city gates. How do you wash your robe in the Bible? Well, washing is the cleansing flood of baptism. Baptism is a once-for-all event. But once you have washed in baptism, we must continue to wash through repentance. So here at the end of Revelation, on the, on the eve of their holocaust, God says, if you're going to make it, trust the Bible, worship, make a habit out of those things, repent, and fourth, we must cry out to Jesus to show up and save us and rescue us. Listen again to verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Now look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Now go to the end. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. One day. It could be thousands of years from now. It could be tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years. But one day, Jesus Christ will return again as judge and architect to marry heaven and earth and to make all things new. But it would be a mistake to think that's what they're talking about. That did not happen soon. It hasn't happened yet. That's not what he's talking about. If that's what he was talking about, then either he's wrong or he stretched the word soon beyond all believability. No, Jesus shows up a thousand times between his first showing and his last showing. He showed up in my family this week. This week, my wife spent a couple of days praying and asking God to give her... She's, she's cleaning Gil's office. She does this on Monday nights. And she prayed this week and didn't tell anybody and asked God to give her two more places to clean on Monday nights. And two days after praying that prayer, Josh Lowe called her and said, Hey, Janelle, would you like to clean my office and my friend's office? God shows up. He really does. Now, you might think that's a coincidence, but as one famous Anglican bishop said, you believe in coincidences. I just know that when I pray, coincidences happen more frequently. God rescues On March the 22nd, 2002, um, my wife and I were flying to Korea. She was pregnant. And on the plane, she miscarried. Doctors were on the plane. They told her, yes, that's your baby in that plane toilet. We were six hours from landing. And all we could do is just keep flying. We get to Korea, we go to the hospital, they tell with our translator and they tell us, no, you didn't miscarry. You need to go 
to the hotel and rest. We do, we wake up in the middle of the night, and then we do because I have Sydney in a bowl. And we go back to the um, emergency room, and we don't have a translator, and it takes hours for them to understand. We're trying to explain, I'm holding. They take Janelle into a room, and as I go to enter the room, these orderlies come out and stop me. And I can't speak English, and they can't speak, I can't speak Korean, and they can't speak English. And they hold me. My wife is in the room wailing. I hear her calling out my name. I'm trying to get in, and they're holding me out. A couple of days later, Janelle and I were talking, and she said, Aubrey, do you remember when I was in the room and I was crying? I started asking Jesus to please rescue me. And I felt you rubbing my head like you do at night when we go to sleep. And I opened my eyes and no one was in the room. Matthew tells us that the name of Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. His rescues, they are mysterious. But he came near to Janelle in that room. And he saved her. And he walked with her. When nobody else could walk with her. The last thing we learn in Revelation. Is we must learn to beg God. To come soon. To rescue us and to save us. And we must expect him to do it. He does it. Wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus shows up. When our church assembles at the Lord's table, he is the host and he is the food. At key moments in history, he has shown up to disperse his enemies and to rescue his people. This week, he rescued my wife's, her own vocational suffering as she cried out to him. 18 years ago, 17 years ago, he rescued my wife in an emergency room In Korea, he comes again and again and again when he seems he cannot ever show up again when it seems that death has brought an end to all his arrivals. He arrives. And if you're going to survive the suffering, you must learn to call on him and to ask him and to pray this prayer. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, rescue me now. And it will. This is what he said at the end of Matthew's gospel. I will be with you. God does not save from a distance. We are saved when he comes near. Notice verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who is thirsty say come. Are you thirsty? Is there something going on in your life that you need to be rescued from? Then here is your prayer. Cry out. Come Lord Jesus. Come and rescue me. When it is all said and done and you are on the brink of a terrible suffering, cry out for Jesus and he will come. The Christian life is dangerous business. We face trials and temptations of all sorts and God uses them to test our faith. No one knew this to be more true than Jesus himself. And no one invites us into the joyous dangers of faith more graciously than he does. Church of the Incarnation. Make a habit 
out of trusting the Bible, worshiping God, repenting, and praying for Jesus to show up personally in your life. Let's pray.